Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Welcome, podcast listeners, back to Making Data Simple. If you'd like us, tell all your friends. You can always hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Please be patient. We get a lot of traffic in there. Today, I have a special guest, Rithika Ganar, who is the VP of Expert Lab Services and Learning at IBM. She's held many hats within IBM, VP of Product Watson Data and AI, VP of Data and Analytics, VP of Information Integration and Governance. Rithika, I'll let you explain that, you know, where the disciplines are, your experience and the roles that you've held within those titles in a minute. Uh, the interesting thing about Rithika is that she recruited me to my current position because uh, I am in services, as many of you already know. We are now partnering in data and AI to elevate the services business beyond our wildest expectations, and we're doing that. We're having some fun. We'll talk about that. I have been in development my whole career, either core development or support or both. I've led data. I've led AI. If I was to look at my brand, I call it data, clients, and leadership. I would put AI in there, but it's still fresh and there's a lot to learn. But the first two I've earned, that being data and clients, the last one you always continue to earn, it was his leadership. Point is, is even though I have clients in my brand and I would think it's my sweet spot and I have experience in support, which by association would lead to services, it took a little bit of convincing to get me to make the switch because I've always been in development. She has a ton of energy. <laughs> it's infectious and you, you just can't say no. And I'm glad I didn't because... I've enjoyed every bit of it, even though it's quite a challenge given today's market dynamics. So Rithika, welcome. I am going to start though, hold off for just a second. I'm going to give you a compliment. You can take compliments, can't you? Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I have found since working with you, you've got the tech, you've got the business acumen, the ability to execute and the intangibles that go in between. I found you to have the ability to make swift decisions, willing to listen. And that means if you're working with Rithika, you got to be on your game because she'll make the swift decisions. And if you're not powerful enough to come and say, hey, wait a second, you know, you're off to the races. I really enjoy partnering with you so far. Thank you, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to be able to have the opportunity to be able to work with you. I think in our short time working together, I've really enjoyed some of the changes that we've made and the way we've progressed our teams. And I'm looking forward to do even more of that with you. Can you tell us about your background and how would you describe your personal brand? Look, my personal brand, if you kind of take a look at my history and where I've grown up, I'm a data and AI enthusiast. But my career started as computer scientist, as a software engineer. And I started out of college working on developing Java programs, C programs, and systems management. And I really didn't enter the data space till probably eight years ago. So a lot of what you read out at the beginning here, that has been fairly recent. So my career has actually been rooted in developing products, supporting products, and then going into the field to work with clients with leading edge products. So my brand is very much so associated with being core in the software development space. And I would say within the last years, doing a lot of product management and what we call offering management at IVM, probably externally known as product management. 
in the data and AI space as I've come in, I've been able to traverse every different part of our data and AI portfolio, minus the uh, business intelligence space, own product in that area with brief stints in sales as well as now in services. And so if you look at what I've done, it's always been core tech, like either building it or doing product, and then out in the field with some role. And I've loved that opportunity because it's been able to give me the perspective on what kind of products hunt in the market by being able to closely work with clients and coming back. So I would say my core strength and core area is product with a lot of client facing roles. With that, I would say I'm known for wanting to do the leading edge things, the things that are traversing and changing in the portfolio, building the first of a kind products. So in the integration space, we did that. In the data science space, building out the initial data science platforms. In Watson, we did that. And I do think we're doing that here as well, Al, in our services business. We are transforming what services means to really be all about a client-obsessed culture. I like it. All right, we're going to dive into that. This is rhetorical, but there's a reason I ask. Is it Rithika or Ritika? Many people actually ask me this. It's probably one of the most common questions I get. It is Rithika. The name is from India. I am Indian. I'm of Indian origin, and the T is a TH, so it's Rithika. But you weren't born in India. I was born in the United States, but of parents who are both of Indian origin. I was looking on Twitter, too. Here's what it says on Twitter. Data and AI enthusiast. All right, you said that earlier. Computer scientist. I like that. I'm an electrical engineer. We've got something in common there. Native Austinite. I didn't know Austinite was a work. I learned that. But that means Midwest. We got something in common there. Here's where I pause. It says Longhorn. We'll, we'll get back to that. Entrepreneur at heart. Yeah, I think I could agree with that. Wife and mom, Longhorn. That kind of bothers me. You know, I'm UT King. Austin. It is my alma mater, <laughs> my undergrad and grad. So you've seen a ton of change here at IBM. What excites you most about the current role you hold today? I often get asked, wow, you've been at IBM so long. How have you been there so long? And if I think about the roles that I've had and the type of work that I've been able to do, it's always on the leading edge. I think you went through a little bit of my history in starting out doing data warehousing, doing integration, doing data science and analytics, doing true AI, and then working with clients. In each of those, I was able to be on the leading edge of the technology changes that were happening in the market. And IBM made a huge difference in how we were progressing parts of the portfolio. That excites me. And that is kind of when I talk about the entrepreneurial spirit, being able to incubate new things, to do new things has always been core to who I am. And being able to do that at a place like IBM means I don't have to leave to be able to do that. I can do that in different parts of this organization and do it quite successfully. Now, the second part of that, why IBM? Look at the transformations that we've made as a company as well and are continuing to make, and especially at this point in time, when we see the advent of most customers driving a digital transformation project, and they're doing so with cloud and data and AI, types of transformations that we are enabling for clients to do that in a hybrid cloud in a very open way, leveraging data as a 
asset and as a differentiator through a lot of the AI technologies we provide, regardless of where your data is, regardless of where your applications are. That is truly transformational. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, not only the history of what we've done with IBM, but why IBM now, I think we're at a very pivotal place in our history. And I'm really excited to be a part of it. I feel grateful. And I'm really looking forward to what the future holds for us. And to be part of that change, to me, is an honor. You know, a lot of people ask me about the same, you know, hey, I've been at IBM a while. How could you be there so long? It is big business, but personally, and I couldn't agree with you more on the entrepreneurial spirit. Look, I've been in development. I've been in every part of piece of data, you know, big data, just general repositories, you know, with Spark, I could go down the list, but, and then AI, sales, services, this is the same company. I mean, think about the experience you get uh, running those different businesses across the company. And I don't think we often get the fanfare because we're the backbone of these Fortune 100 enterprises versus an iPhone that's out in the commercial and you see it every day. But it's fantastic, some of the technologies we get to touch on a regular basis. Anyway, totally agree with you. On data and AI specifically, where we are, you know, we're going through pandemic, coming out of pandemic. I hope we're coming out of pandemic. Who knows? It's going to be a while. What do you see the imperatives within data and AI for this business to be successful? There's a few different taxonomies you can use. I would say that the first one is that we know to truly scale AI projects, you need to be able to have a foundational information architecture. And I'm sure your audience has heard of the AI ladder where we talk about when you wanna be able to modernize how you leverage data and AI, you start with a foundation of understanding where your data is, making it simple and accessible, leveraging the governance capabilities to be able to organize your data so you know the right people have access to the right data at the right time, to then be able to use that as a foundation to develop and use and analyze using AI models and ML models or deep learning models to be able to start creating AI because your AI is only good as that foundation of the data that it sits on. And then I always say that AI is not a thing. It is always in all the clients that we work with, it is part of something bigger. So you need to be able to infuse that AI either as part of a business process or an application. Now that's one framework in terms of how we think of the technology, meaning you need to have a foundation of good data, you need to be able to govern that data, then you need to be able to make sure that you can leverage it to build AI and to put those AI capabilities in context of the process of the applications it serves. There's a second component to this that I think is really important that I think often gets overlooked, and that is, it is not just about the technology. I see barriers to really driving AI and data projects rooted in three things, culture, processes, and data. So we talked about, I'll start with the last one on data. We talked about you need to have that foundational information architecture. I also talked slightly about the process piece, which is AI is not a thing, it's a process. And so most people fail to realize that because AI is an ever-changing, evolving thing based on the data it sees, processes that you use today to manage your production level applications are gonna have to change to envelop the needs of AI. And this is the reason why when we talk to most clients today, they say, look, I have thousands of AI models, 
but I only have a few of them in production. It's because we don't really consider what it means for AI to be part of that process. And the third thing on culture is probably the most important when it comes to AI projects that fail versus AI projects that succeed. And that is that the cultural aspects are rooted in not just skilling the data scientists, but every part of the organization to really understand how data and AI impact their role and the outcomes they see from the person that's developing the applications to the data scientist who's building the models to the person who's putting that in production to the person who's managing that application to the line of business who's consuming that output. Everybody needs to understand what it means. And the cultural aspect that I see is that you need to have buy-in from the top down and the bottom up because you're dealing with something that is changing a process that has existed for a while. You need to be able to have CXO level sponsorship as well as everybody in the organization really buying in because you will fail and you will have to use agile practices to quickly learn and reroute. I know that's a long answer to a very simple question now, but I think it's not just technology, it's those other aspects as well that are essential to making data and AI projects successful. From my perspective, just kind of building upon what you just said there, look, I think you've got to have a microservices platform and a, a platform by which to modernize your environment. That's the what you mentioned is the ladder to AI, collect, organize, analyze. And then within that ladder, you've got to be able to leverage AI for analytics. So it's that platform, it's the institutionalizing AI. And I think uh, the current environment, we can maybe talk about this, is going to promote subscription. If I was to give a fourth one, I think, you know, the ecosystem around all of this is going to be incredibly important in the future, as well as the client experience. Nothing trumps the client experience. And like what you always preach, which I'm 100% behind, is being client obsessed. Before I move on, I want to talk about services, your bread and butter today. Anything else you want to add to that? You talked about institutionalizing AI. I'll tell you, this is an example that I was talking to with a CTO of a financial institution just last week. He said, look, I have thousands of AI models. I only have a few in production. Why? Because when I develop a model that goes into production to determine whether I'm going to give someone a loan or not, or whether I'm going to pay out a claim or not, I need to be able to show that that model is going to create just as good or better decisions than any human would or the human would use that output to be able to augment it. And so there are a lot of regulatory requirements to be able to document how that model is actually coming to a decision, when a decision was made, what factors went into it. If there's bias in the model, how do you see that bias in the model? And if it's there, can we de-bias it? And I think this is the wave that we're seeing right now that scaling AI is all about how you can explain models and how you can detect bias and remove that bias, which we'll get into kind of some of the things that we're seeing right now in the market with a lot of the biases that we see in decisions that are being made and a lot of the Black Lives Matter. We're actually seeing an increased amount of requests for, can you tell me if there is bias in my existing models or even in the data that I have historically that I've used to be able to make decisions? It's quite exciting. What do you think the most important things for companies today is around AI? You have to start small, expect that you're gonna iterate and fail, and then 
grow into understanding what it means to actually put those models into production. What are the barriers and the things that you need to do in your organization to overcome those? Because that's very individual to each organization. I'm not sure that there's some companies that are getting left behind because I think they're so focused on the bottom line. There's a lot of models, by example, you invest in that don't make it to production, like the company you were just referencing. But if you get the one good model that does and changes the course of your business and is able to better predict loans, churn, whatever it is, I mean, it's like magic. Sometimes I'm not sure that companies are in it for the long haul and they're looking to, they're looking short term as usual versus long term. And it's hard for them to get that investment in AI. I don't know if you're seeing that, but I certainly see it. I had a meeting today actually with another financial services company and their, their executive team. And it took them quite a while to get to finesse that balance of creating the platform, creating culture that enabled them to be successful and a center of excellence to be able to scale out their AI projects. Now they're able to churn out AI projects within the bank easily. And I'm talking about, you know, pervasively across every line of business. But that initial upfront work to understand what kind of technology was going to be used for the base, what kind of stewardship they needed all across the organization how to build out a center of excellence to be able to scale some of these pieces out was essential for them to get to the point where now they can truly accelerate how AI is being used in their bank. The interesting thing is when I arrived in late February, Expert Labs, it's how we refer to our, our services organization, had something like 90% of our folks on site. You didn't tell me when I got here we were going to have a pandemic. And now I'd say, I don't know, less than 10% of our experts are on site and the world's an entirely different place. What are the changes that you've seen in the current state of our industry right now? Oh, well, they're dramatic. And I think in every industry because of COVID. I would start with this. First of all, I am so proud of our teams for the resiliency that they show. And not only the resiliency, but the instinctual need to be part of something bigger and to be able to help others in this time of need. So I don't know whether your listeners know, but we launched a COVID-19 program to be able to give our technology and the expertise from our team to those who most needed it, state governments, hospitals, even you know commercial companies, because if you look at it in the time of the pandemic, information was changing at such a rapid rate that nobody could get a straight answer. And you didn't want a subject matter expert to be able to answer those questions. If it was hospitals or nurses trying to figure out like what the symptoms were for COVID, you didn't want that nurse on a phone. If you were a government agency figuring out how to give loans or where to reopen particular types of businesses, you didn't want to spend your human capital on answering questions. And so leveraging a lot of our assistant technologies in our portfolio, as well as the expertise in your team, Al, we were able to rise to the occasion and help our clients and our community so immediately. And for that, I am grateful because our, our team showed not only resilience, but really leaned into how we could use our technology, how we could use our expertise to be able to help those who were really in need. But the other thing the pandemic taught us was 
we needed to learn how to work differently. As you pointed out, most of our people are now remote. And I think, you know, over the past few months, not only have we learned how to do the things we would otherwise do in person remotely, design thinking sessions, architecture sessions, even coding with our clients, we can now do much of that remotely in a way where customers even believe that they're getting the same level of productivity, if not more, in a remote environment. And customers themselves are more comfortable giving remote access, working in a digital manner, and figuring out how to engage in that way. I have to say, you know, during this time, I personally feel like I've been able to touch more clients, talk to more customers, to be able to spend more time understanding problems. You know, I would have been flying to Europe for a particular meeting. I'm now able to cover like three meetings in a particular day. So we've been able to take what is a negative and learn how to change the way we worked where I even think once the pandemic is over, some of this is here to stay because it allows us to be more optimal, more efficient, more focused. Well, like any war, I guess this is kind of like a war that we're all in worldwide, interestingly enough, together, you usually get some kind of innovation and usually it's profound innovation that comes about it. I think there are going to be some systemic changes. When we first started this, you know, I came over, everybody went from being on site to being remote. There were many clients that we were working with at the time that didn't have the right VPN or otherwise they said, we can't do it. But since then, we've seen a ton of changes. Banks otherwise have opened up secure lines, et cetera, to allow us to work remotely. And I think it's going to better our overall business, just our business. I mean, that businesses profoundly uh, moving forward because uh, of the remote environment that we've been able to uh, to drive. I do worry about a little bit of brick and mortar because I, I think folks are figuring out that we can do a lot of this stuff remotely. What do you see as the principles of, of a great services business? It's the reason that the mantra for our team, as you well know, is being client obsessed. When you look at what our organization is all about, it is about having and being the trusted advisor of our clients being the subject matter experts to be able to help them understand not only where they need to be, but what does that journey look like? And in places where they'll do it, make sure they're skilled enough to be able to do it. In places where they want us to help them do it, where we actually are guiding them and helping them in the right way, or in places where they want us to do it all for them, we can do that as well. So when I look at it, it really is about how are we customer obsessed? How are we advisors to our clients? How are we challenging their thinking and the way they see their business? And we can be giving them the skills to be able to then accomplish that or help them accomplish that. And we often within the advising, we talk about the need to be challenger sellers. And I don't know that that often comes off organically. A lot of people, I think, look at challenger sellers as being overly aggressive with the client, you know, the opposite of client obsessed when that's not the case. Can you talk to your feelings around what it means to advise clients in the most impactful way? When you challenge or advise your clients, you're providing a point of view based on data that you see not only for them, and it's really important to understand your client. You know, don't just jump to a technology solution. Just Don't just jump to an outcome. You have to understand them almost better than they can understand themselves. 
when you're with a client, you need to understand their needs, you need to understand what their outcomes are. And so through that understanding, and by the way, through our experience of working with many other customers and clients, we understand not only where that client is and where their inherent needs are, but what works and doesn't work. And so a challenger sale or the challenge advisory services that we always talk about in our organization is not to be confrontational in nature, but to really help your clients start thinking differently in ways maybe that they didn't really think about or to really augment the way that they are pursuing their trajectory in a way that benefits them. And I think this is the role that we play within a services organization to really take our knowledge and to be able to help make the client better, but in the context that serves them and for the outcomes that they need to drive for their business. Let's see if I can summarize. Uh, I would look at it three different ways and you tell me if I'm right or wrong or, or you tell me if I miss anything. Number one, you talked about our people. This is about having the, the strongest performers in the business, not about hard work, about, but about impact and skills as currency, meaning we've got to be the smartest in our field, period, which we are, by the way, if you're listening. That's our every goal. And by the way, we manage to that excessively in terms of learning and pushing learning, et cetera. Secondly, on the business side, we've got to be those advisors that are that do it in a challenger seller type of way. In other words, teach, tailor, take control and teach clients something that they hadn't thought of about their business because we know their business so well. So we become that trusted advisor, but everybody's got to do it. That's number two. And then as it relates to the clients specifically, I don't know if you said this or not, but I'll throw this out there and then you can make comments on it if you agree or disagree. But I, we've got to be very, very simple to work with. It's got to be a pleasure working with us with in offerings that are innovative with a strong go-to-market and drive immediate time to value. How'd I do? <laughs> you did well. I didn't mention the third one, but I think that's a given. Nobody wants to work with anyone who's hard to work with. Great summary. What are you most proud of in your tenure in services so far? Look at the transformation we're making, Al. It's the people that are part of this organization. Any services organization, it really comes down to the skills within your organization, the methodologies and the assets that you develop. And for me, I am most proud of the team that we have built, the pivots that we've made and the areas that we've focused. Any org always starts with their people, services org more especially, and building data and AI experts to me is a passion and to work with clients and to have a team that embraces working with the clients in a customer obsessed way is gratifying. You talked about the many different roles that we've all had at IBM. I have to say this is probably one of the most fun roles because we get to work with our teams and build people and the skills on our team up every day. And we get to work with clients every day and we get to work with technology every day. We get to help our customers take something that they really want to accomplish and apply technology, apply skills, apply methodologies to drive the outcomes that they need to innovate and to stay differentiated and competitive in the market. That's pretty gratifying. And it's the thing that I'm most proud of. So it's our people. What attributes 
or skill set do you look at or you think are the most successful for those that find themselves in services? Technology is important, but it's not the only thing. So I'm going to take a step back and say there are probably three things that are really important. Number one is the curiosity to learn. And this would be not only for my team, but anyone who's in the data and AI space. I always say, if you look at the average skills lifespan, it's about three to five years in a market. With data and AI, it's a lot less. You're talking about 18 to 24 months max. I mean, go back and think about technology cycles. It is a lot shorter. I mean, even for me, I remember when I was developing data science products, my offering manager gave me a lesson in Python coding and said, take these three, four classes before you learn how to build a data science platform. To be able to have a culture of curiosity and learning is to me probably number one. That's the number one thing we need to kind of have within our teams and within our organization. The second one is emotional intelligence because a lot of what we do is working with clients every single day. And you know it is about being able to drive the outcomes. And that means you need to be able to truly understand what's happening. You need to be able to read the temperature of the client. You need to be able to understand when things may be going awry you need to understand when to pivot. So a, a lot of our roles as services, people who are working with clients every single day is about the emotional intelligence. And that will go to number three, which is you have to be articulate. Because you are working with clients every day, the ability to be able to communicate what we're trying to exude and what outcomes we're trying to drive is extremely important. How much time do you spend directly working with clients? If you were to shoot out a percentage, what do you think it would be? So actually I did this recently over a quarter to 30% of my time. Like if I look at even today, I spent four or five hours with clients. So it is a big chunk of my time, either prepping for client meetings, which I think is equally important. If you look at every hour of a client meeting you have, you've probably prepped five X that time. So it's about within the 25 to 40% range, depending on the month. I would tell you like in COVID times now, because I don't have to be on a plane all the time for one particular client, it's probably just as much client time, but a lot more clients. So we need to be spending lots of time in front of our clients with our clients. And it's so, so important in, in running this business. You know, I'm so glad you talked about the prepping piece. Because, you know, I've spent a lot of time working with clients and there are times where somebody said, hey, man, I don't know. You just got a natural ability for it. And I'm thinking, what? Are you kidding me? I spent 10 hours preparing for that call. I better have done it right. I think people forget that there's a practice and there's a lot of research to be done when you're meeting with the client. So thank you for mentioning that. I think that's very, very important. I sent a, a blog to my team, but also posted it externally as well that you can see again on LinkedIn. Like most things, I steal it from other folks. And I, I stole this one from Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he's got four quadrants, just real quick. Urgent and important is quadrant one. Not urgent and important is quadrant two. Urgent and not important quadrant three, the lower left. And then not urgent, not important on quadrant four, the lower right. I think it's very easy for organizations, particularly when you're dealing with clients all the time, you're working issues, you're solving problems, you get stuck in quadrant one, which is urgent and important. And you, you got to address some issues there, but you don't want your whole time spent there or else you get stuck. And then like when you do have a breather, you end up in quadrant four where you're just 
you know, it's almost busy work because you're just kind of breathing. I see also with many organizations that, you know, that you can get stuck in quadrant three, urgent, and non-important, and think you're a quadrant one. And those are the meetings, the reacting, the mail, that kind of stuff. Where you want to be is in not urgent and important where you're doing fire prevention, if you will. You're doing strategy, planning, networking. I want Everybody's very interested in this right now. I've been getting a lot of pings on it. I want to know what your trick is. What is your work style like? I mean, what's your antidotes to getting or remaining and pushing an organization in quadrant two? I think that's a good question. I think everyone has their own way of doing it. And periodically, you have to go take a look at how you spend your time and reflect, am I spending my time in the right places? I got to tell you, the transition that we made into COVID, I noticed initially that I probably wasn't using my time as wisely and the days would easily fill up with meetings. And so I will tell you what I've tried to do, and I think I've been more effective at it recently than at the beginning of COVID. And that is I block bigger chunks of time during my day. And I know some people take a particular day, but for me, it's first thing in the morning. You probably won't see me doing extremely early morning meetings, as you know, except for I think one day a week, Al, where we're talking to our teams in different geos. But usually I take every morning and I will not start a meeting till later mid morning so that I can have that time for think time. And that think time is either writing or it's putting together strategic documents or it's working on things that are important for the business. But for me, that think time is so critical. And so people often say, wow, you know, (laughs) is your calendar like extremely busy? When it gets super busy, I start tearing it up to, to make time. Do I have to do that? Is it urgent and important and it requires only me or can someone else on my team do that? And I've started doing that a lot more because I think as a leader in an organization, yes, there are urgent and important things you need to take care of. Customer X really needs help on this and they want you to help them with their strategy. And those are things that you have to do to keep a pulse on really what's happening in your organization and what's happening with clients. But equally important is what you're doing to progress your organization ahead. And that is something that is only on your shoulders. And so taking that time out and making sure you're doing that is really important. It doesn't mean you have to have a packed schedule in your diary. It means that you need to be able to break out that time and have that time to have those discussions, to do the slow thinking, or you won't progress. Tell me more about your writing. I mean, is it writing just to get your thoughts out on paper, like strategy, or is it purposeful in terms of I've got to get strategy document out, or is it just thoughts? I mean, or is it all the above? It's a little bit of each of the above, but in different areas, I would say. So for me in the morning, starting with, okay, what are the few things that I really want to accomplish for the week, for the month, for the day? It's really important. So when you look at that sheet of paper, and I do do it actually more now so than previously in a written format, not even on the computer, because I find it sticks better. And when you have it right in front of you and you look at your day, you're like, am I accomplishing the strategic things I need to accomplish for the week, for the day, for the month? That serves as a reminder. So that's one piece of it. But the second is, yes, the strategic documents and the thinking that you need to be able to have to be able to drive the organization That is important to be able to do. And so the morning time is usually for me when I I like to be able to block that time and spend doing those things. 
on your Twitter, your Twitter feed, so to speak, I see tweets about STEM, AI, women in tech. Uh, you got to tell me a little bit about your passions there. I'll start by saying this. I was never truly focused on women in technology. And I never really saw it as part of my role to be a true advocate until recently. The history behind this is I have a daughter. She's now 11. When she was younger, we sent her to a coding camp with her brother. And both my husband and I are engineers. We really believe that you know, it's not just reading, writing, and arithmetic. You need reading, writing, arithmetic, and Python. And it is important for us to have children, regardless of what they decide to do, who understand the fundamentals of what it means to build software, the fundamentals of computer science, engineering, data science. This is important, not just for my children, but I truly believe for every child. And when I sent her to this coding camp, she came back and she said, I don't like it. I don't want to do it. Don't send me. And I told her, I was like, why don't you like it? Come to find out she was in a class with all boys. Just with a switch of having her in a class where there were other girls, I sent her next to an all girls camp. She loved it because she could relate to them. She could see herself and the teachers as well as the peers who were part of her group. And a light bulb hit me that you know, people need to be able to see themselves in an example for them to wanna to go that route. And so I feel like it's part of my duty as well as passion of mine to be able to pay it forward so that others can see they can do it, that you know there are certain traits that you need to be able to get there, but it's absolutely possible and we need more representation. The second thing is if I look at it, the most diverse teams create the greatest output. When you have diversity in the teams that you have, you're able to create the kinds of products that you want, the kinds of out-of-the-box thinking that you need to be able to drive forward. And so this is why it's a passion for me to have more women in technology and to be a mentor and support those women who really want to get there but don't know how. I want to go through a lightning round. What this is is I'll shoot you a question and just give me a one bullet answer. And if you want to say something as to why, that's fine too. All right, good. This is like, get to know Rithika Gunnar. Outside of your family, what are you most proud of? I think for me, what I'm most proud of is just that entrepreneurial spirit and the things I've been able to accomplish with that in my career. Can you give me one of those things? I know you have many because I've seen the list. Anything as of late that just strikes you? Well, I think like the transformation we're making on this team, I would say the products that we've developed over the past decade, I could go on and on about like the product areas, um, what we've done in data science, what we've done to establish centers of excellence. Like there's so many of those where I feel like that entrepreneurial spirit outside of my family, the entrepreneurial spirit and that drive to, to have such an impact or change in my career. It's been to me something I'm truly proud of. Good answer. Passions outside of the workplace. Where do you lose time? What do you really enjoy that's outside? Hiking. Of Hiking. Do you take the whole family with you? Oh, yes. It's a family event. What do you like so much about hiking? Is it just getting outside? Board? Is it being the family? Is it the whole package? What is it? Well, I like being outside in nature. And especially since moving to New York, I moved to New York two years ago. I think this is a great place to be able to hike. It's beautiful up here. So it's about spending time in nature and really relaxing and being able to think differently and then doing that with the family. So that's something that we do together to be able to spend time 
to have quality time where there are no devices, where you know, you're uninterrupted and you're together as a family talking. So those two things. What is your go-to order at one of your favorite restaurants? Pizza. Pizza. All right. Do you get it delivered or you go eat? I guess you don't. No, you I'm don't talking about wood-fired. What, uh, what's the last gift you gave somebody? So I gave my husband the pizza oven. Oh, so he's making the pizzas. It all yes. comes together. All right. I got it. Just a couple more. I'm almost done. I'm going to ask you this question and look, you could, I mean, it just depends on the day. It's like asking your favorite song. My favorite song changes, you know, every other day. But if there were three people in history, living or dead, you could eat dinner with, you know, if you and three others, so you got four at the table, who would it be? Abraham Lincoln, Nelson Mandela, Warren Buffett. Give me just a, a little snippet of why. I think each of them have accomplished so much in different ways and what they've learned in their life. I mean, I've been, I think I, last time we talked, I think I told you I'm doing a lot of reading on our American history. So that's why Lincoln, I'm just so passionate about how someone who could come from such little means could, you know, find the character, the enthusiasm, the drive, the leadership to really focus our country and make such a transformational change for us. So that is Lincoln, Nelson Mandela for everything that he persevered through and even through what he's gone through, what it means for the transformation he did for even his country, Warren Buffett for what he's been able to do for obviously what he's done with his companies and what he's been able to drive and just his ethics, a wonderful man. So those three for very different reasons, but that's who I would like to have dinner with. You know what? You're the fastest having answered that question. Uh, and Warren Buffett, by the way, would be on mine. I think his discipline. Who are your other two, Al? I would say today, my other two. Uh, you're not supposed to ask me questions. No, today the other two would uh, probably be Marcus Aurelius. Uh, it may be Paul McCartney. If I could get Lennon and both of them in one chair, I'd probably do it. And then it'd be Buffett, just because, like I said, his discipline. I'm going to finish up real quick in a Would You Rather. Casey Barbecue or Texas Barbecue? Pick Casey Barbecue. You know the answer to that, Texas. Why wouldn't you give me a bone? Why can't you just throw that to me? Please. All right. Services or development? Services. AI or data? AI. Mm. Austin or New York? Actually, both now. I, that's oh, a hard one come on. I'm pushing you over a side. Which one are you going to fall on? Oh, Austin. Because you're home. That's your home country. It's home. All right. Hey, thank you so much for playing along today. I appreciate it. Look, I think you're fantastic. I appreciate it. I love working with you every day. And I'm glad we we're able to finally uh, have a chat together on the, on the podcast. So thank you. for. Thank you, Al. Likewise. All right, listeners. Again, thank you for listening. And as I always say, reach out to almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Until next time, I'll see you on the podcast. Later, guys. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Out.